You're listening to Living Faith, the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Avon Park, Florida. First Baptist Church is located at 100 North Lake Avenue in Avon Park, Florida. We meet Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. for Sunday school and 10.45 a.m. for morning worship. Sunday evening services are at 6 p.m. On Wednesday, we meet at 6 p.m. for our weekly Bible study along with our immersive student and children's ministries. Find out more at www.fbcap.net or give us a call at 863-453-6681. You can email us at info at fbcap.net. We'd love to connect with you soon. This is part of our current Sunday evening sermon series. Take your Bible. We're going to look at two passages of Scripture specifically tonight. So look at Ephesians uh, chapter 1 and 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, both in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 1. In a few weeks, in the first Sunday night that we have service in September, we're going to begin our emphasis in the fall of discipleship. And just to let you know, um, we'll, we, uh, barring holidays and things that go on, we, we plan on having Sunday night service and, and just another great opportunity to open up the Word of God each and every Sunday night. But in the spring, uh, in the fall I should say, uh, this year and then after the holidays beginning in the, the early spring, those two times of the year we're going to have a special emphasis of, of intentional discipleship Bible study. Um, and, uh, and then in between those two times there will be church service, but it will be more like tonight and, and singing and, and preaching the pulpit. But beginning this fall, it's going to be more discipleship and, and uh, opening up the Word and, and flipping around and looking at things, unpacking a topic that is, will help us grow and to mature into the, uh, the image of Christ, that there should be a desire to be there. So get, uh, be thinking about that. Several, several churches don't, don't do Sunday night service anymore. Um, you know, I understand that, and so uh, more than excited to have folks be with us that not necessarily part of our church on Sunday morning, but uh, we're looking forward to that starting in the fall. So the next couple of weeks, I've just been praying about it and thought, well, I'll use the next couple of Sunday nights to not start something new until we do get into something new and kind of dig a little deeper on Sunday morning's message uh, because it is so hard to get everything out uh, that the Lord is burning my heart with. So I want to look at this. Uh, the idea of the Trinity and how everything works together and this idea of, of salvation. We've been looking at John chapter 6 and coming to Christ and God's role and our role. And so I think it's a great opportunity to look at the Trinity. Uh, it's, a good, it's a good opportunity also to remind ourselves sometimes we need to take a step back and to really think of things biblically and logically and, and see how things fit together. One of the things about Scripture is it does not contradict itself. Uh, now, as you read Scripture, you read something here, that, and it may sound like it says that, and then you wonder why it says this over here. And, and so sometimes when we have our little doctrinal hobby horses, we, 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 we grab this verse and we grab that verse. Well... This verse doesn't cancel that verse. I mean, this, 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 if this says something about God, then that doesn't cancel out that about God. So if this says something and that says something, we just have to realize, okay, this thing fits together. It doesn't, you know, X each other out. 
the Trinity, we definitely do not have the time for this, but you'd be surprised a number of, of just, and I always use the word TV preachers because they're on TV and we might know them, but you'd be surprised a number of like TV preachers that, that we may listen to and we can hear things and go, well, that was encouraging. You know, we hear a good word that have some strange views about things, especially the Trinity. Um, and, and so it is important that we understand maybe what we know and what we believe, not just a minute micro passage of what the Trinity may say or, or a doctrine may say, but that we're students of the Word and we say, okay, we know this is what this says, this is what this says. You know, like the Holy Spirit. You know, the, somebody may say, well, the Holy Spirit leaves us because it, it talks about in the Old Testament that God took the Spirit from Saul. Somebody may say, well, that, you know, I believe the Spirit leaves us because it, it talks about, well, that if you step back and you understand what the Spirit was doing in the Old Testament and what the cross fits in and then what happens when Christ sent the, So that's just a good example. Now you're sitting there thinking, well, I didn't know. I didn't, I've never heard that before. But the, the Spirit departed Saul and the Spirit went on David for king and God's blessings and God's favor. So that's just a good example. You see something there, and you build an entire doctrine over something, and you haven't figured out how does this apply everywhere. So we have preachers that can do that. We've been to school and seminary. and uh, You know, we have technology to help us in that. But you know, the, you know what we have more than anything to help us understand the Word? The Word. We have the Spirit of God and the Word of God it, does it take time? Yes, it takes time. Does it take effort? Yes, it takes effort. But what a great joy to know that we know that we know what God has given us in his word. So here you go, the Trinity. Big, big statement up front. When we think about the Trinity and salvation, we have to remember that the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one. And so everything they do, they do together. The Spirit's not doing its thing, Jesus isn't doing his thing, and the Father is not doing his thing. Well, that, that sounds like a, a duh, you know. Of course, Pastor, we know that. But I, I'm just saying, think through that. Everything that the Trinity is doing, it's doing together. There's unity. The, the God the Father, God the Son, and the God the Holy Spirit is after the same thing. They're doing the same thing. They're accomplishing the same thing. They're not working separately of one another. And one of the things that comes out in different understandings of the Trinity and salvation, if we're not careful, what we think is taking place actually is what it's doing. It's dividing the Trinity. God the Father wants this. God the Son wants this. But the Holy Spirit can only do this. And as we step back and we realize that's not how God operates. What, what God has planned, the Spirit is doing, and Jesus will bring to accomplishment. It's all working together, which is a great thing as we begin to understand. So looking at these verses, we're going to read both of these verses, and we're going to look at what each aspect of the Trinity does. So if we think about the Trinity and our salvation, let's start with the Father. When we think about the Trinity and our salvation, we understand this. We are loved by the Father. We start with God. That's a great place to start. 
When someone comes to me and says, I'm coming today, I want to know I can be saved. I'm coming today, I want to be baptized. I'm coming today, I want to get... However they word that, whatever that means, I know what they mean. However they word that, the first thing I do is I want to sit down with them and I want to give, give them something to think about, to pray about, to work through biblically. And it always starts, we have to know who God is. If we know that we need to give our life to Christ, if we're coming today to make a profession of faith, we have to understand before that can ever take place, we have to understand who God is in order for us to understand why we need saving. And so we think about the Trinity, we think about salvation, we think about we're loved by the Father. John 3.16 says what? For God so what? He loved the world. He hates sin. Okay, we, uh, that's, that's another great example. Well, God... God loves the world, and so he doesn't, we, we shouldn't tell people they're wrong. Well, that's just bad theology. I mean, that's a great example of what I meant a while ago. Yes, God so loved the world, but is he talking about just planet Earth? So we need to all be, you know, not cutting down trees and, and loving nature because God loves the world. You know, does that mean that, that God loves this? God, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So that's a great statement to understand. We think about our salvation. We know that God loved the world. God loves his creation. And there's a God that created, and there's a God that's orchestrating, and a God that's planning, and there's a God, and everything that God does, it is motivated by love. Another verse, when we think about our salvation, 1 Timothy 2.4. 1 Timothy 2.4, I will read that, 1 Timothy 2.4. He's talking about praying, praying for the kings, praying for this, uh, pray for those in high positions. Uh, and I always encourage people this. It's funny, whoever you voted for or didn't vote for, if you voted for them, it's so funny. Y'all are so funny. People are funny. If you voted for that candidate, God placed him there. Okay, so that's one group. If you voted for that person, God placed him there. If you didn't vote for that person, God is punishing us and put him there. Isn't that funny? Same person, same group of people. So that was free. I say that because I always think about this. We need to pray for people. We need to pray for our leaders, regardless of who they don't. And don't go praying for them. Well, I don't really. No, pray for all people. That's what God's word says. First of all, I urge supplications, prayer, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved. Come to the knowledge of truth. There's one God. And there's one mediator between God and man. Men, the man Jesus Christ. Who gave himself a ransom for all. Which is the testimony given at the proper time. So we see a, a God that has created the world and loves the world. We, we see a heavenly father, God the father. We see a, a heavenly father that desires... All people to be saved. So then we begin to look at that and say, okay, what, what does that mean? 
We know that not everyone will be saved just because Jesus died on the cross. So if you say, okay, God loved the world. He desires all people to be saved. The next logical step would be if you believe that God loved the world, all the world, desires for all people to be saved, then, then logically people can say, and have been told me this many times by different people, therefore by Jesus Christ dying on the cross, all people will be saved. Is that a true statement? Don't answer out loud. You may not know what I'm talking about and say it wrong. That's not, a, that's not an accurate statement. God loves the world. God desires all people to be saved. But just because God loves the world and desires all people to be saved, just because Christ died on the cross does not mean that all people will be saved. That's universalism. Everybody would just eventually be saved. I had a pastor say one time that the only reason we go to hell is that we reject Jesus Christ. That because of his death on the cross, everybody is going to heaven. And what prevents someone from going to heaven is they reject Jesus Christ. So therefore, based on that crazy logic, the answer is not telling people about Jesus Christ so that they can go to heaven. It's don't tell people about Jesus Christ so they won't reject Jesus and they will go to heaven. A pastor in a pulpit on a weekly basis said that that's just and we hear that and go that's crazy yes sometimes when I make statements about knowing what we know and why we know it you think why does he get so wound up about that because maybe I'm just exposed to more crazy people than y'all are so just don't tell people about Jesus and they won't reject Jesus well that's just that that is wrong on, on many many things so now we get to think I really believe with all of my heart God loves the world. I really believe with all of my heart God desires all people to be saved. But we have to understand what does this desires to be saved mean? Because if God desires something because he is God, it's going to happen. That's what we put on the brakes, isn't it? For God to desire something that cannot happen, he ceases to be God. And you sit there and you ask yourself, do you believe that? I really do. If, if God desires something, God, God can't desire something and then it not happen. So what does that mean? I, I, I think it means that there's a, a revealed will of God. God. God desires me to be absolutely obedient, but I'm not. Let's go on, and I think you'll understand what I'm going. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, those, those are foundational to me. When we start looking at God's role in salvation, we never forget that God loves the world and that God does have a desire for those, everyone to be saved. Will everyone be saved? No. But we can never miss the understanding of what God is doing. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. He writes, well, I preached through this a couple years ago. He writes, to those who are elect exiles and dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The elect 
And that's a word, I, I'm going to get ahead of myself a little bit here. That is the, one of the most controversial words that I've ever come across in theological studies. It is so controversial, preachers never preach on it. How do I know that? Because I sit in college, and when I, I had an opportunity to go to college and get a theology degree, which is not very common, and I went to our own Florida Baptist College, our, our Florida Baptist school, and we were sitting in there, and we went, we went theology talking about election, and after the, this long lecture on election, the, the, the professor said, how many of you have ever heard your pastor teach on election? Raise your hands. Not a hand went up. And one guy raised his hand. He said, well, I did ask him about it one time. And I asked him why we don't do a study on election. He said, too controversial. We're not going to do that. And, he, and I didn't. I wasn't. In, I mean, I was in the room. I didn't say anything. I'm usually the one that's always talking. And this is what the guy said to his pastor. But it's in the Bible. Still, it's too controversial. We're never going to talk about it. And isn't that sad? So, therefore, we have something that's in the Scripture that we as church folks on a consistent basis have never studied and walked through. And so we kind of develop our own understanding of a, a, a biblical doctrine as we gather little data here or there. But you know as well as I do, like on a Wednesday night, when we sit down and walk through Romans one verse at a time, we're really getting a bird's eye view and a, a big picture view and a small picture view of the book of Romans. And the only way you really are going to understand the things about the Word is we've got to get in the Word. So we'll get to this and move on a bit. The elect are those that have called on the name of the Lord. For God so loved the world that whosoever, the, the whoever will is the elect. They are those that God knows. It is those that, you know, He, he desires for the world to be saved, but He knows only the elect are going to be saved. And so we ask ourselves, based on John 6, what is going on here? God draws, God does this, and God does that. Let's go on to verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. Let me read that again. To the elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Why this verse? It talks about the entire Trinity. Why Ephesians 1 in just a minute? It's the entire Trinity. So here's another word we come across. Foreknowledge. What's the role of the Father in salvation? Well, we know he loves. We know he desires for the world to be saved. We know that. We can't just counsel one out with the other. But we also know there's some foreknowledge involved with that and so we ask ourselves well, what, is, what is foreknowledge so we ask ourselves okay if God is God then we have to trust God knows everything but for some reason it makes us very nervous to say God knows everything and controls everything but we put a little comma there but when it comes to individual salvation, God takes a step back. So God is in control of the entire universe, but yet when it comes to an individual making a decision for Christ, he, leaves, he just kind of takes a step back. 
Now, sometimes I say things I know are confusing. But that does sound pretty sweet, doesn't it? I mean, that sounds kind and gracious. That God has a foreknowledge, but when it comes to that day that John was going to accept Christ, God just kind of went, that sounds good. That, that frees somebody up. It's like, kind of takes, takes God off the hook and puts the responsibility on them. But to me, it, it shrinkens God. I'd much rather know this, that there's not one thing that happens outside of the realm and the, the control, the loving control of our Father. And so the foreknowledge is not to me, as I look at Scripture, I'm going to show you why I believe this. I don't think foreknowledge is looking into a crystal ball and seeing down the road and saying, okay, John is the elect because I know he's going to make a decision down the road. That is a a, a definition of foreknowledge. I know it's going to happen, so therefore it's going to happen. Again, it sounds good on the front end, but as you follow that out, it's like a dog chasing its tail. God knows it's going to happen, so therefore it's going to happen. Well, then I always, I, I did ask this in class. That was fun to be in class with. That came up. We were, we were talking about different aspects. So my thing was, we're arguing over foreknowledge. The professor's like, yes. So if foreknowledge is, I see what's going to happen in the future, so therefore it's going to happen. And if foreknowledge, if, if, if people don't like the other definition of foreknowledge, which is basically this... I know who's going to be saved because I foreordained it from the beginning. So that's one, one idea. I know who's going to be or, or saved because that has been the plan from the beginning. And the other option is I know who's going to be saved because I know what they're going to do. So and I'm, I'm in class doing this. I'm making Matt nervous just talking about this because I am pretty sure you didn't stand up in class and talk like this, did you? No. My reputation, you know, and that's a joke. He knows that. People, anyway, long story. So here I am explaining, I'm asking, I'm saying this out loud. So if I believe that God does not just know who's going to be saved, and that's been the plan from the beginning, and that makes God sound like a mean, non-loving God, well, why would God just say, here's going to be saved, and, and, and that is already determined, Okay, that's option one. And the person that was arguing that point was saying that makes God unloving. If he know who is going to be saved based on their choice, he's still allowing them to go to hell by not changing their choice. Again, we just got a headache, didn't we? So God knows what I'm going to do. And he knows I'm not going to choose him. I'm still going to hell. The other alternative is to say, everybody that calls on the name of the Lord is exactly what God's plan was. I'm just weighing two options here. This option gives me a lot more responsibility, but it shrinkens the sovereignty of God, and who's going to be saved is going to be saved. 
Or I can just take the word for what it really means, that God knew from the very beginning who was going to be saved. And it wasn't based on something I did, it's just based on who God is. That's the other option. I'm going to tell you when this option became the option, I believe, back in seminary, that God knows because he's God. Turn, if you will, to this is one of these aha moments. This is one of these moments that you go, aha. Now, Sharon will be the first to admit this. There was a couple of times we had a little shed in our house at college, and, and I grew up in a church. I was never really challenged to grow. Our, our pastor was a sweet man, and I loved him very much, more of a topical preacher, you know, uh, talk a little bit about the scripture, throw in a couple of poems, and every, I mean, he's a good man, and I loved him, but he just, he never really, mm. and so as I was encountering these things, we had a little, we had a, the, the washer and dryer went in a shed behind the house, and so whenever I would come home and start th- thinking about all these things, she'd say, okay, go get you a little thermos of coffee and all your little books and go lock yourself in that little shed. And when you get all this worked out, you just come on back in the house, all right? Because my personality says, I want to know what God's word says about this. Here was an aha moment. Man, I was struggling with this. Acts chapter 2. Verse 23, you're thinking to have an aha moment. Brace yourself. I didn't like the way it sounded that God and foreknowledge was. It's already kind of set in stone. Foreknowledge is I, I know what's going to happen because I'm God. I, I'm the God of creation. I kind of wanted foreknowledge to be, I know what's going to happen, and so therefore I do know who's going to be saved because I look into the future and I see that that person will choose that route, so therefore it's going to happen because I see it. Acts 2.23. Let's start with 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Now this is, it's funny, this is Peter preaching with the Holy Ghost. He done got the, it is a, he already has received the Holy Ghost and he is preaching the paint off the walls. This isn't, this isn't Peter doubting and running and this is Peter filled with the Holy Spirit and he is preaching and he said, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and what? Same word. Foreknowledge of God. You crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. So let's take that word and apply it here. Do you think God in his foreknowledge knew that this man Jesus was going to be born and would decide to go to the cross? Or do you think that God sent his son to die on a cross? That's an aha moment, isn't it?
foreknowledge to God is not knowing what's going to happen, therefore it's going to happen. Foreknowledge to God is, this is going to happen. Jesus couldn't have got to the garden and go, well, you know what? This burden's a little bit too heavy for me. Let's, let's do a do-over. But again, we have to remember, God is a God of love, and he desires for all to be saved. It doesn't contradict. There's a desire for all to be saved. And, and it's kind of like the, the revealed will of God is for all to be saved. That's why he sent his son. But at the same time, the sovereign will of God is they're not. And so the word foreknowledge must mean the same thing. The foreknowledge of Christ going to the cross was not something that God knew that Christ would do. He sent his son to do it. Now this word foreknowledge, this word election, I'm telling you, you cannot get a more controversial, you know, so at the end of the night if we walk through this and we think, you know, if that's the most controversial thing I've got to struggle with in my own heart, we got it made. And the reason why it becomes so controversial, it's not controversial out here. It's controversial right here. We, we want everyone to go to heaven when they die. You know, we want people to receive Jesus Christ and be saved. I mean, I, I, I want that child that was born in a jungle and grew up as an adult in the Amazon and never heard Jesus Christ to go to heaven when they die. But if they never hear Jesus Christ, is there, you know, they're not going to. And so the reason these words are so hard is because they, they challenge us and our flesh and our instinct. Of, uh, we want people to be saved. We want people to go to heaven. But in actuality, it ought to help us embrace just the glory and the wonder of who the Lord is. We're going to spend the most of the rest of our time here. In Ephesians, go back to Ephesians, and I, I chose Ephesians and First uh, Peter because they, they they're passages that deal with all three in regards to our salvation. Go back to Ephesians. You're there. I got to get there. Ephesians one. Blessed be the God of our Father, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Don't we wrestle with that? What does that mean? It means, uh, I love questions. Who asked me this question? I can't remember. A child asked me that. I can't remember. Somebody this week asked me a question. Maybe sitting in here. I don't know. I was reading the Bible, and it looks like that Adam named all the animals. It looks that way, doesn't it? Was that y'all? Was that Justin? Somebody, we were talking about that. Just a good question. Something like that. Read the Bible, what does it say? I don't name the animals, you know. That's what it says. <laughs> I didn't explain that. 
Adam was standing there and he named animals. I don't, you know, it's not rocket scientists. We just kind of do that. Pastor, what do you think it really means that God chose us before the foundation of the world? I think it means that God chose us before the foundation of the world. But we, we wrestle with that. Because we, I think we, we naturally have a desire, and I've wrestled with that. I was locked in a washroom shed for a couple of weeks. Okay, what does that mean? It means that God has had a plan from the very beginning. He, he did not, here's another great thing to look at when you think about God's sovereignty. God was not walking through the garden going, we're Adam and Eve. Um, Father, um, mm, this um, serpent came by. Uh, sorry. I mean, God did not go back to the break room in heaven and go, Did y'all hear what happened? Left them alone for five minutes and look what they did. Gabriel didn't say, You want to start over again? No, I got too much invested in this thing. No, the, the, uh, if you look in Genesis, there's an us there, the us created. Jesus was already on the scene. Jesus is helping in creation, creating Adam and Eve who's going to fall for the Satan. I mean, all, so, I mean, we, we, we wholeheartedly, we jokingly look at this, but we know it's the truth. I don't think it's an evil message that we can just simply say that God a loving father has chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Here, here's how I walk through that. God has always chosen a special people. Now we could say, okay, but what God, okay, so pastor, and I, when I say pastor, these are just talks I've had. Pastor, I get it. This would have been me to brother Jack. Okay, Jack, I get it. But he chose the church. Okay, that's it. That helps me. He chose a, a group of people to before the foundation of the world. That was his plan. He chose the church. Well, yes and no. God's plan of redemption is always through Christ individually. We know that. So then when I was like, okay, that's, that's not it. God chose Abraham. And he said, Abraham, I want you to go and be a blessing to the nations. He just, he just called Abraham out of earth. He said, I want you to go and be a blessing to the nations. He called the people of Israel. He said, people of Israel, I want you to go be a light, light to the nations. I want you to go and to be a, a light of who you are in me to the nations. Jesus called the twelve. He said, I want you to come and follow me. And you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I want you to go and share and multiply. And so as we think about it, God has always been a God that has chosen people for a particular task to go and to glorify him. And do you know who he wants to glorify him? Us, individuals. Not a, not a massive group. And so as difficult as it may be to embrace, before the foundation of the world... If you are a believer of the Lord Jesus Christ, he chose you in Christ to be his and to go live for his glory. 
I remember hearing a grown adult Christian, as a, I mean, been in church a long time, an adult Christian, Bill Cook's wife. And she, was, she, she came and spoke at a class one day at college, and we were talking about grace, and, and she started crying, telling it. And she said, I was in my bed as an adult, born-again believer of the Lord Jesus Christ, and grace hit me. And she said, I dropped to my knees by my bed and said, why me? Why would Jesus do that for me? That's grace. Before the foundation of the world in Christ. The Father loves the world. The Father sends His Son. The Father chooses those who will before the foundation of the world. I want to read something. We won't, can we go over for a little bit? Do I have your permission to go over five minutes? Five minutes. Maybe ten. I was reading and studying, and I came across a section in one of our, and I say our, our, whenever I say our, I'm talking about my tribe. Um, this is, uh, was put out by uh, Southern Baptist uh, Home and Broadman Publications. Uh, David Platt, Danny Aiken, Tony Morita, uh, and it's the exalting Jesus in Ephesians. And he's walking through this path. Well, this is us. This is our tribe. Okay? This isn't written by somebody outside our tribe. This is our tribe. This is Southern Baptist. And it was so good. So this is the nature of election as, we, as he was going through Ephesians 1. He says, let me take a few observations about this nature of election in this text. First, we must admit there's a great mystery in the doctrine of election. The passage speaks about what God was doing before the foundation of the world. It speaks of his eternal secret purposes. And it recognizes that he works all things according to the purpose of his will. We must admit mystery here. God is God and we are not. Deuteronomy reminds us the secret things belong to God, Deuteronomy 29, 29. So we might disagree about the finer points of this mystery, but we can still fellowship and serve together. It is difficult for finite creatures, and I like the way he says that, with three-pound fallen brains to comprehend how this doctrine relates to God's love for all people and his impartiality, as well as it relates to human choices. We should be okay with mystery. And counting mystery should be a cue to a start of worshiping. Number two, he says, while we may want to affirm mystery, we should also affirm the other attributes that clearly affirmed in this text. In this text, we see that God is perfectly loving, eternally sovereign, and gloriously gracious. And he's also infinitely wise. Psalms 115.3 teaches us God can do whatever he pleases. And whatever he does, it is always consistent with who he is. Meaning, he can do whatever he wants, but whatever he does, it's going to be because he is loving and gracious and sovereign. And then he says God is loving. Election is an expression of God's love for his children. Paul says, in love, he predestined us. 
God is sovereign. God's choosing is simply one. Notice the language of God's sovereignty. As Paul mentions predestination, God's favor, good pleasure, God's will, God's administration, God's purpose. God's choosing is simply one. What he said, the idea of God's choosing is just one. Notice the other language, his good pleasure for his favor, for his will. And we see that God is gracious. God's choosing is an expression of his grace to sinners. God did not choose us because of anything good in us. We needed a Savior, and the Savior came and died for us. God is wise. God is choosing is an expression of his infinite wisdom. Third, the passage itself shows the necessity of a personal belief in the gospel. So even though that there is a, 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 a chosen before the foundation of the world, there is still that responsibility that an individual must respond to the gospel. This is true even in all our questions about human responsibility or will, even though they are not answered in this passage. Look at verse 13. It says, and I'll read that, one must believe. Remember, this is the same sentence. Election and faith belong in the same sentence. And it is a sentence only God could write. We may not understand this, but we should fully embrace it. We embrace other truths that are mysteriously woven together like the deity and the humanity of Christ and the divine human authorship of Scripture. Someone once asked Charles Spurgeon how he reconciled God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, and he said, I never reconciled two friends. Someone else asked a pastor this problem, and he replied, that's not my problem, that's God's problem. And for God, it's not a problem. Just believe both truths truths, and let God harmonize them. Some get the wrong idea about election. It should cast no doubt on whether or not all are welcome to come to Jesus. All may come. That is the invitation. Russell Moore says, God is not some metaphysical airport security screener waving the secretly pre-approved and sending the waving through the secretly pre-approved and sending the rest into a holding tank for questioning. God is not treating us like puppets made of meat, forcing us to along with his whims and decisions. Instead, the doctrine of election tells us that all of us who have come to know Christ are here on purpose. And then, The the writer of the commentary goes on to say after that Russell Moore quote, our invitation should be come to Jesus when you come, thank him for drawing you. Another question that is often raised is the need for evangelism. Election does not lessen the need to tell people about Jesus. Election gives us the hope in evangelism. When Paul was discouraged in Corinth, this is another great aha moment verse, when when Paul was discouraged in Corinth, Jesus said, Do not be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent because I have many people in this city. That's Acts 18. Paul was agonizing over his ministry in the city and he had a a vision from the Lord and he said, I have people in this city. Your job is to go. Some people will believe when you speak the gospel. 
The hardest of hearts can be converted because evangelism is not about the quality of the presentation, but the power of God. We should fear no one because of this truth. And because God is sovereign, we should assume that God has placed us where we are for the purpose of seeing others come to Christ through our faithful evangelism. Further, there are numerous examples of missionaries and pastors who did affirm this biblical view of doctrine and election. William Carey, Andrew Fuller, John Patton, David Bernard, and more. The Lord, who is the judge of all earth, orders us to go and make disciples of all nations. Maybe the most famous example of this is the Apostle Paul. Interestingly, in Romans 9-11, through Paul speaks about election in detail. But the chapter in the middle, chapter 10, is about the necessity of evangelism for people to come to saving faith in Christ. In that section, he is burdened for lost people. And love compelled him to proclaim the gospel to everyone. Again, this passage in Ephesians is primarily focused on God's activity in salvation. Some texts will expound more heavily emphasis on human responsibility, but we do not have the space necessary to harmonize all these passages. And this is not God's, Paul's purpose either. His purpose is to praise the God who saves sinners. So he's been going down a list. List one, admit there's a mystery. Two, affirm the mystery. We should also affirm who God is. Three, the passage is a necessity of, of personal belief in the gospel. Four, our election is in Christ. We are chosen in the chosen one. F.F. Bruce says, he is the foundation, origin, and executor. All that is involved in election and its fruits depends on him. O'Brien summarizes, election is always and only in Christ. We are not chosen for anything good in us. God accepts us because he has chose to put us in union with Christ. And number five, finally, in light of these things, election should humble us. The proper response to God's having chose us for salvation is all and worship and obedience to God. Election should not anger anyone or inflate anyone's pride. It should humble everyone. No one should be arrogant when talking about the doctrine of election. For those who want to argue against this truth, Paul says, but who are you, O mere man? To talk back to God, Romans 9.20. We should not be arrogant. We pots do not talk back to the potter. Those who embrace this doctrine but walk in pride have not applied it properly. This doctrine should put us on our faces in worship to the sovereign, wise, loving, gracious, mysterious God who has chosen us in Christ. It's a good read, isn't it? Real quick, the last two. We are loved by the Father. We are redeemed by the Son. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Back to Ephesians 1, verse 3. He has chosen us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption. He, he chose us, God chose us. 
He predetermined, he predestined that as through our salvation, we become adopted into the family of God. Now we move on to Jesus. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose which is set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Again, in him, in Christ, Christ came in the counsel of his will. Jesus in John 6 said, I come to do the will of the Father. Jesus Christ came to accomplish that will so that we were to first to hope in Christ, made for the praise of his glory. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and notice what it says, and this is what Pastor Tony was referring to, and believed in him. So we are chosen, but we believe in him. One does not cancel out the other. We are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Verses 3 through verses 14 is one sentence. It's one sentence. Isn't that a mouthful? We are loved by the Father. We are redeemed by the Son. This real quick. What does that mean to be redeemed by the Son? My sins are forgiven. Done. No guilt. Nothing. We take our sins to Christ and we confess our need for forgiveness. We have no idea what he has been doing before the foundation of the world. All we know is that the Spirit has opened up our heart and shown us how sinful we are. And we look up and we see a loving Savior and all we know to do is to run to him and ask him to forgive us of our sins. And he does. People may say, well, what if I've done that and I'm not the elect? That does not, that doesn't, doesn't make, you can't do that. We're trying to put ourselves up in, in the, heaven, the heaven, heavenly sphere of things. Someone that has a desire to come to Christ is the one that God has drawn to himself. We don't know that. You're unable to come to Christ and ask for forgiveness of sin unless you are his. That's what makes the gospel. Wouldn't that be a depressing gospel? That you really, really want to be saved and you really understand what it means to be saved and you really, really have confessed your sin but you don't know if you're one of his yet. Any reference to someone that has fallen away or is not bearing fruit is because they've never been born again. If you have a desire to repent of your sin and call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is evident you have been born again. So we have our sins atoned for, our forgiveness of sin, grace. We are the recipients of God's grace and his righteousness. Here's something we miss out, and I have to confess, a lot of times my preaching is this way. We tell people, turn from your sin, confess your sin, but all that is doing is like taking this jacket off. 
We tell people to come to Christ and get rid of your sin. But yes, you have to get rid of your sin. But when you take this off, he clothes you with his righteousness. Isn't that pretty neat? I take my sin off and throw it at the foot of the cross. And he clothes me with his grace and righteousness. It's not just saying, my sins are forgiven. No, my, my sins have been forgiven. I'm clothed with his righteousness. And then those last few verses, 11 through 14, the role of the Holy Spirit. He, he draws, he, he convicts, he, he takes the word and opens it up. When, when that, when that, sometimes we don't understand the context because we're so used to being in church our whole life. When you walk into a, on the mission field, have you ever been in a mission trip? And you go into a mission trip and you start sharing the gospel and all of a sudden people start responding to the gospel. That's the Holy Spirit. God the Father has, has chosen before the foundation of the world. God the Father has sent the Son. God the Father has sent the Spirit. And the Spirit convicts and the Spirit woos and the Spirit draws and the Spirit peeks into our heart and it literally creates in us a new creation. Ezekiel in the valley of dry bones, that is what the Spirit does. We are dead in our trespasses and sin and the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and makes us alive. And then he says, and I will seal you for the day of redemption, for the day of glory. That seal in, in Ephesians talks about authority and ownership. And you sealed a letter. It was a sign that you belong to someone. And the Holy Spirit seals you and keeps you. Christ said, I will never lose you. And, and no one will snatch you out of my hand because the Spirit will seal and to keep you. And then it talks about the promise with the Holy Spirit, verse 13. It's like earnest money. It's like a, a down payment. This is just a, a taste of what is going to come for all eternity. I have the Spirit abiding with me, but one day I'm going to abide in the presence of God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it is a guarantee of our inheritance. I'll close with this. I do want us to sing. I love to sing and fellowship and sing as we conclude. Go back to what I first said. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I'm a, I'm a Christian, not just a preacher. I'm, I'm a Christian that has the word and I want to see people come to know Christ. And I've got a neighbor that does not know Christ. And as a believer, I believe in what the God does in salvation. I believe in God the Father, I believe in God the Son, and I believe in the God the Holy Spirit. And they are all working in unison to bring about God's plan. It's not the idea that God knows who will and that Jesus died for all, and the Spirit's drawing those who would believe. Those, those are three different people doing three different things. Did, did you catch that? God the Father just knows who's going to choose in the future. The Son died for all, and the Spirit is working to those that will believe. 
Those are, that is God doing three different things. That is impossible. God has a desire for all to be saved. He loves the world. But for the foundation of the world, he had a plan. And individual people are part of that plan. And Jesus Christ died for those who will. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. And the Spirit is working in the midst of the gospel and those that whosoever will, and they will be saved, and they will be kept, and they will be raised up on the last day. And so as we worship today even, every day that we worship, but whether it's in church or we're living our Christian life, we have our hope in a God that is a God of, all, of the Trinity, all working together to accomplish God's redemptive plan of salvation. It may frighten us. It may make us nervous. It made me so nervous. I was locked in a, in a washroom for days. I couldn't figure it out. And one day I finally had to say, I'm going to trust what I see in God's word and just give him the credit he needs. Charles Spurgeon says this. Charles Spurgeon was a very, he believed in, in the election. He believed in that. He believed that election was before the foundation of the world, individuals. He believed that. He said, when I would preach the word and I'd get to like the Psalms. The Psalms is all about the sovereignty of God and him being in control. When I, when I get to God's sovereignty, I preach God's sovereignty. When I get to come to Jesus, I preach come to Jesus. I don't preach one doctrine, not another, and I preach all of that. Go back to this morning before we pray. And just picture Jesus standing in front of a human being. Just standing in front of mankind. And he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger and never thirst again. That's what it's all about. Knowing that God will do his part. Why? He is God. We'll let him take care of that. And I'm glad he is. But I'm going to do my part. And once I have that view of God, I can trust the word. I can trust what he said, and I can trust the power of my witness to know that whosoever will, will come to Christ. Let's stand as we pray. Lord, God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the, the moments of wrestling with your word, the awesomeness and greatness of your word. That before the foundation of the world, you know who will be saved because that is your will. But at the same time, you loved us so much, you sent your son that whosoever will, will. Let us be in awe of your sovereignty. But let us never lose our passion and excitement to beg people to come to Christ. Let us rest in our own salvation, but rejoice as you us to bring those to yourself. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.